0: Welcome back to episode 73 of Sporting Max. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link, connecting you and your business with the biggest stars in the world through events and experiences. Please welcome number 73, former NBL Sydney King, Luke Cooper. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Sporting Max, with is how you join but former Alton Wildcat. He played with them um, from juniors to seniors and former Sydney King. He's played overseas in Latvia, Luke Cooper. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. It's amazing to have you on. How you going?
1: Good, mate. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: Um, Now, Luke, I'd like to start off with sort of your childhood and what growing up uh, was like for you.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Eltham. So I'd played all my junior basketball for Eltham from... Under eights on Saturdays to Vic Champs on Friday nights into ABA in 2000. It's a while ago, you're making me feel old. <laughs> 2001 and 2002. So I started playing ABA when I was in year 11, which was 2011, and then played for four years before I went to college. So 2001 through to 2004. Yeah. Um, so what
0: was it like for you sort of growing up? Um, I mean, your dad, Mel Cooper, was one of the most famous referees in the NBL in the 1990s. What was it like um, growing up with him as a father?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was good because we had, obviously had access to go to games and experience things at those games that other sort of children couldn't. But,
0: yeah,
1: I mean, in terms of me playing and stuff, like, I copped a fair bit of stick from... Um, you know, opposition players and, you know, you only made this team because your dad's Hollywood and yeah. <laughs> all that sort of stuff that like no one really liked him anyway. So why would I make a team because of him sort yep. of thing? So it was good in a sense. Um, it had some challenges at times, but the, the the positives definitely outweighed the negatives, definitely.
0: So how did you find your junior years, are, like you mentioned, at the Elf and Wildcats and what was sort of your greatest skill or ability? Um, on the yeah court.
1: so probably uh, as it has been from juniors all the way through to seniors um i was never really uh, i mean i was more at a, a junior level because you, you're sort of called upon more to be a, a more of a scoring threat but that just wasn't me I, I was always the distributor and be able to find guys that could score the basketball that could shoot and finish um so that was my main role nothing really changed and I guess the the hardest thing for me was, and I played a lot of AFL growing up too, so I got to an age where I was like under 17s in AFL and under 18s in basketball where I had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went with basketball. I probably would have never made anything of an AFL career anyway, so I probably made the right decision. But not making – I think I was also fueled through my juniors of never making a state team. So 16, bottom age, tried out for top age, didn't make it. 16 top ages didn't make it. A's like it all the way through to under 20s when um, I didn't make the under 20 state team. So I was, I was in under 18s, I was actually cut the same cut as Bogut. And then Bogut oh. obviously went in a different direction, a different trajectory to me. But um, I think that sort of fueled me. And uh, when you have those setbacks in terms of not painting teams that you wanted to or thought you should have, you sort of got two options. Do you sulk and do you you sort of look back and say, oh, I'm better than him. I think I thought I should have made it over him. Or do you you sort of put your head down, tail up and like make adjustments and make improvements so that next time that didn't happen? And I felt I did that. So then when it sort of knocked me down the next time I tried to make the team sort of started to get to wear on me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I sort of found some strength to like, just to stick with it. And um, I'm really thankful I did that. Because, um, yeah, it ultimately ended up with me getting a college scholarship, which was um, really beneficial to my career.
0: Now, I hear you were a junior teammate uh, of Aaron Bruce. What was he like uh, as a junior?
1: Yeah, so we're still really good family friends. He came down, I think he started at Ultham in under 16. So his family used to come down from Horsham. On a Friday afternoon, we used to play Friday nights and then they used to stay Saturday and then he used to play with us Saturday and then they'd go home Sunday. And then after Aaron sort of went through our juniors, then Sean Bruce came down. And he started playing for Alton and then obviously mm-hmm. the family stayed with us on weekends at Sean, he was playing. But Aaron was just, he was always just a gun junior. Uh, from under 16s, I was trying to make the, the Metro state teams and he was always in the country state teams with... And I used to every every national championship, I used to miss miss out on making the team. I used to go watch Aaron play, and um, it was him and Reese Carter that used to run the um, yeah the uh, country teams. And it used to be like Brad Robbins and. Basically just if, if a team was 10 players, it was nine Danny Nong players and like this random Blackburn player or something like that. <laughs> but um they hey, they all, Vic Metro always used to win. So he, I mean I I can all sit here and sulk about not making the team, but they um they put we always well Vic Metro always put together a decent squads that very rarely lost at national championships. But Aaron was just he was a class above when it came to those those national championships.
0: Now, you broke your ankle line under-18s. What was this time sort of like for you, and how did you recover from the injury?
1: Yeah, I mean, the hardest thing for me was was a week before I was supposed to go to schoolies, so I spent schoolies on my crutches. (laughs) Um, It was a time of year where there was actually not a lot of basketball going on, so it actually wasn't too bad, but, you know, as a kid at that age... And even now like when you get injured you do your ankle or something you just take walking for granted such a simple thing that you take for granted and a kid at that age where you just got so much energy and you just want to be playing you want to be training you have to sit on the sideline and watch your teammates play and know that you can't contribute in the way that you want to contribute Mm -hmm. it's just hard it's still hard now like it doesn't matter what age you get to when you're in it when you're injured and you have like you're a competitive beast you just want to be out there contributing helping your teammates it's just frustrating there's one word to sum it up it's just frustrating
0: um so then you, like you mentioned before how did you get um i guess that scholarship um to go to college at the university of alaska
1: yeah so this is basically when australians going over to college was in its infancy obviously Gazy was at seton hall in
0: 1920
1: mm-hmm. but then the, <laughs> next, the next big name to really go to college was Bogart, and he went to utah in 2003 i think he spent two years there and with without the benefit like the benefits of social media it's hard Mm -hmm. to get your name over to college coaches whereas now it's just you know you put it on twitter you put it on instagram college Mm -hmm. coaches see it they like it they sign you sort of thing but back then it was just compiling video footage of yourself Mm -hmm. spinning it onto dvds you know dvds (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. spinning onto dvds and then i had a guy bruce palmer who um he was coach when i tried out for hunter pirates when i was in year 12 didn't make it but he had a lot of contacts over in the state so i just fed him my dvds he sent them out to coaches and the process back then was it's sort of a network over there whereas if one college coach didn't like it they'd forward on to a next college and hopefully it just ended up in the hands of someone who was looking for the player that i was and that happened to be a coach in alaska and the rest is history so, what was your sort of college experience like? Yeah, I got really lucky my freshman year, and I think even looking at it now, there's such a fascination and obsession with kids that want to go to Division One. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's they just want to be able to tell my friends, "Yeah, I went." I think finding a college is—it's so important to find the right fit. Yeah, mm-hmm. to find a college where you have coaches and a program that wants you and wants to invest time in you to make you the best player that you can be, and I was lucky that, and coach college coaches even now they'll tell you all this stuff and just to get you over to college and then basically just chew you up and spit you out if you're not good enough. So mm-hmm. I was lucky, really, in a sense that my freshman year I was able to play, and I, I find that only the only way to really gain a um a really successful college career is if you're playing minutes you can you can do all the off-season workouts you can do all the 6am like doesn't matter what you do the only way to maximize your talent as a player over the course of four years is to be playing minutes on the court and get that experience and i was lucky as a freshman our senior point guard got injured i was really close to redshirting my freshman year Um, But our senior point guard got injured. So I sort of got thrown in the deep end eight games in the season, ended up starting the rest of that season and then started every game my junior, every game my, uh, sorry, sophomore, junior and senior year. So I was lucky that um, it's sort of luck to start with and then creating your own luck as you go and then just sort of learn uh, being a sponge and just learning from the upperclassmen and then just taking that and dedicating time in your own game to make, making sure you're actually playing those minutes.
0: So what was college like, uh, I guess, off the court?
1: Yeah, it's such a great experience. And I mean, it's not for everyone. It requires a certain toughness, not just physically, but mentally it's hard to be away, especially at such a young age, you like mm-hmm. to spend your first 18, 19 years living under your parents' roofs and then bang. They sort of kick you out and it's just mm-hmm. you're across the other side of the world. You're um this is back in the day where we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't like you yeah. just FaceTime your mom and dad when you're having a tough time. This was straight on the foot straight on the computer and emailing them and obviously mm-hmm. even calling them's hard back then. So um I loved it like I thought it was such a fantastic experience. It had it had its downs definitely um you know I got home really homesick my freshman year and there was times that I wanted to come home. Um, mm-hmm. But that's going back to what I said before, finding the right fit that really cares about you as a person and nurturing you through those tough times. I had that, um, and I had that off the court. and um, obviously being an, an Australian and playing basketball has its perks over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and at times distractions. So it's really hard to focus on you know your school and your basketball as your priority but also mm-hmm. finding time to enjoy the, the, the whole college experience at the same time.
0: Um, now you were nominated after the Bob Cauchy or Kusi award. Um, for those who don't know what's this, uh, what is this award and what did it mean to you um, at that time?
1: Yeah, so that's a pretty special, probably my most special accomplishment at college. Um, so it's, it's an award for the, I think it was eight or nine top college point guards. Uh, in the Mm -hmm. states in 2004 so 2008 um Mm -hmm. and it's just division it's usually just division one but i was the only division two player to be nominated for the award um so (laughs) and it's just basically just voted by votes so whoever has the most votes won so i just narrowly lost to Derek rose
0: um
1: it was just it was a cool it was a cool way to get recognized, I guess. And so definitely out of my league in terms of the, like there was Ty Lawson, there was just a bunch of other guys that had distinguished NBA careers, Mm -hmm. Um, but just the recognition was, was, um, was pretty cool.
0: And you uh, had the most assists in Alaska Anchorage history. And I think captain to the school, Um, is that right? And what was it like to, you know, be recognized, you know, Australia coming over to America, um, taking on all these sort of um, top kid and teen prodigies who go to the NBA, like you mentioned, Derek Rose?
1: Yeah, it's. I guess when you hang your hat on one thing when you're a player, and that was mine was just being unselfish and trying to make my teammates better, and then... My senior year, I led the nation in assists, but more importantly for me, I was second in assist to turnover ratio, which was like as soon as the game's finished, the first thing I looked at mm-hmm. every single game was how many turnovers I had. Mm-hmm. Okay, number one, because my college coaches were on me all the time about taking care and valuing the basketball. Yeah, So being able to look back on that, my senior year leading the nation assist, but more importantly, having a really good assist to turnover ratio, I think it was like point nine eight to one turnover mm-hmm. that was probably the most important part for me and then just being able my senior year lead us to the final four which we ended mm-hmm. up playing against someone who's previously been on your show Ben Madgen yeah <laughs> so he was he was like the I think the third leading scorer in the nation so my mm-hmm. job was to shut him down the final four mm-hmm. he was averaging 24 points a game I, I kept oh. him to four points oh so uh-huh. I have not, I have not I've not let him forget about that the whole time mm-hmm. we're at the Kings but <laughs> they they beat us so he has the edge over me.
0: Um what was it like to then represent Australia at the university games?
1: Yeah, that was pretty special too. So we went to um Thailand. Um and this was sort of before the university games now if it was like it was now. Mm-hmm. Back then I definitely would have made the team so now it's just like they picked the absolute basically it's a, a a project sort of teams now back then it yeah. was just sort of the best college players that were either seniors or juniors essentially yeah. but just special nonetheless anytime um you, you get the chance to represent your country it's something that, that definitely I cherished and something that mm-hmm. I look back on I still have You know, uh, the sign, signal of all the guys that played on the team, that's something that, um, I mean, any sport, any athlete aspires to play play for Mm -hmm. their country and having the opportunity to do that was something that that was really special for me.
0: Well, you then played um, overseas in Latvia. Can you talk to us um, a little bit about how you adjust um, to playing overseas uh, in a foreign country where languages um, might necessarily get confused?
1: Yeah, and I think it started when I was in year 11 and Mm -hmm. year year 12 when I was playing ABA and playing against those bigger bodies and physical men and then two more years before I went to college. So I essentially had four years of playing against grown men before I went to college. And I think that even helped when I graduated from college and went and played against actual pros because I was essentially doing that before I went to college. And the barrier, the language barrier was really hard the transition Mm. in terms of um latvia is a very similar weather and climate to alaska yeah very dark very cold and i think if i hadn't experienced that in alaska it would have been a real culture shock but Mm -hmm. having been through that in alaska i was able to transition to it relatively easily as you said the thing that i found the hardest to deal with was definitely the language barrier obviously at that Mm -hmm. time 2010 i think it was English was becoming the universal language so majority of the younger guys on the team spoke mm-hmm. English a, a basic English but a, a one that was able to um I was able to understand but yeah our coach was 50 he didn't speak English so oh. essentially when it got to timeouts it was Him speaking Latvian, me sitting at the end of the bench. And then if there was something that I needed to know, the assistant coach spoke some sort of English and he'd just tell me. So yeah. It was it was hard, but I mean, once you're in the flow of the game, I mean you've got signals with your hand signals and it's very easy. It's just it's the barrier of pre-game, post-game, going out to restaurants and Mm -hmm. supermarkets that I found a little bit more difficult. There was definitely just a couple of, yep, and just nodding your head and Pretending you agree and understood when mm-hmm. deep down you had no idea what they were saying.
0: So what was it like on court in Latvia um with sort of wins and going on the road um and try to play your best basketball?
1: Yeah, so I started I started my career at Latvia really badly. I um <laughs> I was probably averaging 10, 12 minutes a game and it's cut throat mm-hmm. over there. So that I went home so the season ran from I think it was august through to december and then we had a break and i went home for a week at christmas and i was secretly hoping that they were going to cut me so i didn't have to go back but
0: yeah
1: um if they did that they would have had to pay me out my contract so i ended up coming, <laughs> i ended up coming back just before new year and i was put through the next two weeks and i think this was specifically targeted to make me quit so mm-hmm. they didn't have to pay me out they put me through trainings i was running extra lines i was doing all this extra stuff that other guys weren't doing at trainings in the gym mm-hmm. they were making me do all these exercises and then i'm trying to they were trying to test me out and push me physically oh. so that i would quit and then they wouldn't have to pay me out but i mm-hmm. stuck through it and i just i knew what they were, i knew what they were doing so i just sort of said stuff you know i'm gonna stick this out i'm gonna be sort of tough it out a little bit and then mm-hmm. our point guard ended up getting injured and then the second half of that season i ended up averaging of 12, 14 points a game and um, yeah. playing really well the, the second half of the season. So um, sort of just a, a lesson to, you know, times aren't, especially as a professional athlete, more times than not, you're going to have really challenging, tough times, and it's how you respond to those. And that's life in general, isn't it, really? That, yeah. You know, it's never going to be rosy. You're always going to have challenges as times that push you mentally and physically. And um, you've got to attack it with the right mindset. And I did that and I sort of got rewarded in a sense.
0: Um, so you then played for the City Kings on the 2010, 2011 season. Why did you start, decide to sort of come home um, and play for the City Kings?
1: Yeah, so I came home from Latvia and I played a year. I played a year at Seabull. I lived with mm-hmm. mum and dad in Melbourne. I played a year at Siebel for Kilsai. And then I actually met a girl who lived up in Sydney. So it was just a chance meeting. Mm-hmm. And, ended up moving up to Sydney and that's when Sydney um, was brought back into the NBL mm-hmm. um, and then having my college career. And then those few years in Latvia um, ended up signing uh, Bob Turner as the GM and he ended up coming. I played for Manly ABA up here and he ended up coming to a couple of games for Manly. Mm-hmm. So, and then it was just a process after that. And then five started my first five games for the Kings and played pretty well. And then, had a game in Adelaide where I broke my foot and then missed the majority, missed the rest of the season, missed the rest of my first season and then um, came back for a second year. So yeah, just challenging times, but was able to pull through.
0: Like you mentioned before, playing alongside up uh, and imagine at the Sydney Kings, what was it like uh, to play alongside him?
1: Yeah, he's, um, I was probably, I, I played two years at the Kings and that was it. And I think I probably could have got a little bit more out of myself in terms of a few more years if i had had the work ethic and the dedication that he has he's probably the hardest worker that i've ever played with he's always there you know an hour before training starts he's always getting shots up after training we used to get my first and second year we got a ball each Every everyone got a basketball and like after the first year his basketball was just you couldn't even read yeah. the bolt on it. Like he just, the time that he dedicated to his game, there's no coincidence for a man that moves as slow as he does to be mm-hmm. able to exhaust a, a, the NBL career that he did, mm-hmm. right, was purely just pure purely through the, his work ethic and the amount of time that he dedicated outside of games itself
0: I mean, that sort of mentality and mindset and work ethic, I guess, runs in the family. I mean, I was watching Women With Drive, I think it was on C31 Channel 44 last night, and they were talking about, because um, it was Melbourne Boomers and um, Michelle Tims, Timsey was on there, and she was talking about Tess Madgen and um, her whole sort of work ethic. And, you know, if there's not a great energy at training, she's going to go, I'm not letting I'm not letting train just go down the kitchen sink, yeah. you know? And I think she, I think they said she called um Ezzy McGregor out for a flop at training yesterday morning.
1: Yeah. And, that, and what a like what a reward for effort that she got being able to make the Opal squad last year like that's no mm-hmm. coincidence that is that's a tireless effort and that's like hearing that story in terms of calling people out and holding people accountable it's one mm-hmm. thing to be talented and make the team through talent but like she's obviously a natural born leader and obviously that talent does run mm-hmm. in the family with Madge his sister Jack playing for Collingwood um, mm-hmm. and that that work ethic that they have and I was funny you say that I was watching golden state play yesterday and they spoke about after every home game steph goes and does lifts weights and does cardio for half an hour before he goes and does his meter and everyone sees mm-hmm. what he does on the court but what he does on the court is a result of his work off the court And yeah. you know, i mean you, you can't produce what he produces without being an elite athlete and being as fit as he is and um yeah you just it's you, uh, the same in anything you get you get and it's the cliche but you get out what you put in and it's so relevant to basketball and what you see on the court is what you see as a result of what you do off the court
0: um throughout your first season at the kings you averaged 13 points um how did you sort of find your first season at the kings where sometimes you get more game time um than other games
1: yeah and it was an adjustment going from latvia to coming back to australia and um I actually, I, I love those first five games that I played before I broke my foot it was the most fun I reckon I've ever had playing basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a really good culture those first, because we were all in the same position. This was the first year back. Some guys at Graham, Dan, Kazoo, they'd all played NBL before. So mm-hmm. we had those veterans, then we had the imports, and then we had just had the guys that are coming out of college or that had played ABA that we were just sort of all put together, but we're in in yeah. it for the same reason, first year back as a club. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And then obviously being the point guard and leading the team through those first five games was enjoyable, obviously it was cut short, but yeah, it was, um, that was a really fun first five games of my, essentially my professional career.
0: Um, I heard you came up against Paddy Mills um, in one of his first games with the Tigers. Uh, can you talk to me about this game?
1: Yeah, so we actually played him in the preseason in a game at Kilsyth um, first, and then we played him down there. And yeah, he, I mean, there's probably three guys that I've found the most challenging to defend, and the guys that I found hard to defend were guys who were just as lethal shooters as they were taking the ball off to the to the hoop. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you've just got a guy who's just aggressive but can't really shoot. You can be a little bit further off mm-hmm. and just have the ability to contain him. But Paddy's obviously a dual threat. Like he, he's easily the hardest guy to defend, mm-hmm. not just when he has the ball, he does so much work off the ball that there's just zero chance to, to rest. Yeah. You mm-hmm. get continually put through screens off the ball on ball screens. It's just, he's just an absolute handful to defend and, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no coincidence in the position he's in today, but him, um, Jamal Wilson, who played for Cairns, and Cedric Jackson, who played for New Zealand, easily the three hardest guys, but Paddy's in a league of his own.
0: So what was it like to play against Paddy Milks and then see the career that he's gone on to have?
1: Yeah, so he came back because I think there was something going on with the NBA season and his contract and... um, yeah, we're hearing the news that he was coming back. It wasn't good news for me. It wasn't good news for other <laughs> Point guards in the League. And, um, I mean, fantastic for the league that he came back and played that season. Um, yeah, and, and uh, that was sort of the year. That was probably the year him coming back was sort of the, the start of guys in Europe, you know, the David Andersons mm-hmm. and Uleys of guys that had distinguished careers overseas, even though Paddy went back to the NBA that started to come back. And I think that's what's made the league as good as it is today. Um, you know, the, the, not just the imports that we have here, but like the, the gun Australians who have had distinguished careers in the Europe and over in, in the NBA coming back, was the foundation of building the league to where it is today. And like yeah. I would hate playing in the league today. It's just <laughs> the talent, the talent in the league today compared to when I was playing is just on a whole nother level
0: so how did your time in the league come to an end
1: yeah so it's as i said before i probably could have got a couple more years out i just i didn't Mm -hmm. i'm one of the ones that didn't dedicate enough time outside Mm -hmm. of the game to myself i was never a good shooter i was never an elite shooter Mm -hmm. so i probably if i had had that outside threat of being able to knock down threes i actually got it once I stopped playing NBL and I was playing for Manly and ABA up here, I felt like I was a better player than when, when I was playing NBL mm-hmm. just because, you know, guards had to respect you. And I, I obviously naturally had an ability to find guys. Um, mm-hmm. I reckon that was the the reason why I didn't get another contracts. And, and it's it's a good lesson for me to be able to convey to kids that I coach now that, mm-hmm. hey, I can tell you to do this stuff, but that wasn't me. And I'm telling you because through sheer experience that, Mm -hmm. if you don't put in the work, if you don't, you know, you want to get to a level, everyone wants to be a great player, but not everyone wants to dedicate the time and the effort that it takes to get there. And the ones that do, do get there. And the ones that don't, you know, they just have that mediocre career. And I felt Mm -hmm. besides my college career in Europe, I felt like I didn't really maximize my potential in the NBL, which is fine. I got what I deserved. Yeah, But, um, yeah, I, th- I feel like I could have got a few more years out of me if I had the right mindset in terms of improvement.
0: Uh, so what are you up to um, now post-career?
1: Yeah, so I'm just – I live up here in Sydney on the Northern Beaches and I'm just coach. Yeah, I'm head of, head of basketball at Mossman High. I run a basketball mm-hmm. academy at um, another school on the Northern Beaches and then I'm just junior coordinator at Scotch College and just coach at Manly. So I'm really – Really invested in kids and like making them better and maximizing. I really have, and I knew when I went to college that Mm -hmm. post career, whenever that would be, that my my passion once it was done would be coaching. I just I love Mm -hmm. the X's and O's. I love dissecting games, watching any games, Europe, NBL, NBA, watching what teams run, watching what coaches do defensively in terms of trying to change momentum of games. I'm really really just I'm a student of the game and I just I love that side of it um yeah so I've been uh, I've been fortunate enough to have a job up here that helps fill that that love for the game that I have
0: so how did you find adjusting um after you played basketball to the coaching side of of the sport
1: yeah so I it it was a little bit easier for me because I still had that competitive fix in terms of playing ABA and I'd still be playing like I'll keep playing until however long. I'll slow down mm-hmm. um, and I can't shoot <clears> still, so <but laughs> I'll still be able to find guys and I'll still run up and down for fitness, but that transition from post-career was made easier through playing ABA. It wasn't at a higher level. It was, it was a lot mm-hmm. more relaxed and um, yeah. more enjoyable because it's not as cutthroat and there's not as much pressure and you don't have to dedicate as much time with it. And I was able to transition to coaching, which is now my post-career through playing. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of made um, a little bit easier through, still feeling that you know the competitive juices that I have, and even coaching, I still have that. I want to get out and I want to play even when I coach. <coughs> and, um, yeah, <laughs> still have that drive to um to uh, you know the competitive drive that you just have it or you don't. And I have it when I coach and I have it when I play, and I just I have trouble switching off sometimes.
0: <laughs> uh, what would be or what is your best advice uh, to anyone who wants to be a professional basketballer? Um, and make the NBL and play overseas and be successful like
1: yourself? Yeah, I think it's just something that we, we're, that I've spoken about the whole time. It's you, you have to have a real, number one, you have to find something you're passionate in, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every businessman, whatever it is, whatever field you choose, the best in that field, dedicate the most time to it, dedicate the most mm-hmm. time to improvement in that. And they get to the top through a mindset, through having the right mindset, and then just dedicating time to whatever it is to make you the best in that field. It's so the same with basketball. You, know, you, need to, you need to identify deficiencies in your game and mm. you need to work on those. And the more deficiencies and areas that you identify, you know, the more improvement you can pour into it, You know, the better the player you're going to be. And there's no... The, the best players you see in the NBA and the NBL, they're not just the best players just because... You know mm-hmm. they're athletic, or they—they're they're the mm-hmm. ones. The best players dedicate the most time to making themselves assure themselves that they get to that position. And um, yeah, that—that that would be the advice that I give. It's so cliche, but you mm-hmm. put the work <laughs> in, and you, you'll see the rewards if you if you dedicate the time to get to where you want to be.
0: Uh, thanks, Luke, for coming on the podcast today. And putting aside, I guess forty minutes or so of your time to come and have a chat—it's been an absolute honour to have you on.
1: All good, man. Appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy.
0: Thanks, Luke. Stay tuned, everyone, for more Sporting Max.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sporting Max. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify or YouTube and be sure to follow our socials. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link. This is The Voice of Melbourne and we'll see you back here real soon for another episode of Sporting Max.